You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, we'll talk with someone who's been helping track and raise awareness about verbal and physical attacks on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders for more than a year. This backlash, this hatred, this animus towards Asians didn't come out of thin air. This has been very much our experience. Uh, It reminds us of how conditional our status is. One moment we're heralded as the model minority, really as a way to deny that structural racism exists. And the next we are vilified, uh, dehumanized, and made to be an existential threat to Americans um, and to our country. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Civic. Before we get started... At the Public Press, which is Civic's parent organization, we've been working really hard during this pandemic to pursue angles we're not seeing much coverage of elsewhere, or to take a more systemic look at the issues that are surfacing in the headlines. The San Francisco Public Press is a nonprofit, and we're inspired by the public radio model. That's the idea that people who are able to support the work that we do so everyone can have access to it without paywalls or ads. If you think we're onto something, we'd very much appreciate if you could show your support. You can do that by going to sfpublicpress.org slash donate or by helping us get the word out about this show. Subscribe on whichever podcast platform you use or leave us a review. It really does help. So thanks. Attacks targeting Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders aren't new. Nearly 4,000 incidents, including verbal and physical assaults, were reported to Stop AAPI Hate, a tracking project launched by a coalition of activist groups last year. And the United States also has a history of anti-Asian racism that stretches back long before the pandemic. But as coronavirus cases started to rise in the U.S., so did the use of racist and scapegoating language, which was coming from the highest levels of government. At the time, advocates warned that the attacks against Asian Americans would require a decisive and comprehensive response, or they were going to get worse. I recently followed up with one person who said that to talk about whether her warning was heeded and what needs to happen now. My name is Cynthia Che, and I'm the co-executive director of Chinese for Affirmative Action. And our organization is one of the founding partners of Stop AAPI Hate. I remember talking with you a little bit more than a year ago when the reporting site and, and tracking project Stop AAPI Hate had just launched. And I remember being pretty horrified that just in the time that we talked, the number of reports of attacks, including verbal and physical attacks, received by the site went from 35 to 40. At the end of February this year, the site had received 3,795 incident reports. You've been talking about this for a really long time. You've been warning about this. You've been calling for action. I mean, I imagine this might be pretty frustrating to have watched things unfold in this way, but maybe that's not quite what you're feeling. Could you give me a sense of your feelings about the apparently, you know, endless increase in attacks on Asian Americans? Yeah, Laura, you're you're right. We have been sounding the alarms um, since we started Stop API Hate. Uh, in March of last year, and we have continued to receive uh, incident reports. And they are stunning in terms of the numbers and in comparison to to prior years. And it's certainly, you know, at levels that I um, uh, had never experienced before um, in, in my lifetime. And I think 
uh, we're still also maintaining that this is just tip of the iceberg um, because we know that many of our respondents are comfortable speaking English or writing in English. They are more likely to be college educated. And so even though we have our reports in multiple Asian languages, we know that we're not capturing what Asians and Asian Americans are experiencing on a daily basis. So what has your reaction been just watching these reports come in um, over time and, and sort of watching the <laughs> conversation uh, turn to more and more? Oh, my goodness, there seems to be an increase in violence and harassment and other attacks on, on Asian Americans. So our community has been devastated um, by the fact that an individual uh, sought out to target three Asian businesses and um, six out of the eight victims, you know, were Asian women. And just the the ways in which law enforcement has has talked about the the incident. And then, of course, the fact that uh, you had community members who weren't able to find out what was happening uh, in real time, family members showing up um, who didn't speak English and just sort of the, the way that it was being covered was an added insult and injury to what has been, you know, just a really devastating time for our community. And, you know, we've also seen very, um, high-profile incidents of violence, some of which, you know, you can, you know, prove that were racially motivated. Um, and, but it doesn't really um, matter because right now our community doesn't feel safe, uh, doesn't feel safe to be out in the public, doesn't feel safe to go about our, our daily business. And that should just be a concern. It's a national crisis. And, um, the, the mental health toll that it's taking on our communities, mm-hmm. uh, especially the fact that our elders are, are being harmed and attacked and in some instances killed. It, it's just overwhelming, really, to, to, to think about um, the impacts that it's having on our community. Yeah. And to that point, in April of last year, you told uh, journalist Linda Ju in a conversation for the San Francisco Public Press that we need an equivalent system-wide response like the public health and government responses to COVID-19 to these kinds of attacks. Broadly speaking, has that happened? Well, I think that it's been very important to have uh, national attention to this crisis Um, to have our federal government, the president of the United States, actually articulate the words that, you know, to disavow anti-Asian racism and and these attacks, to have leadership on this issue, you know, at local, state, and national levels. And I think those initial conversations have been, you know, important and necessary first steps, but we need action. We need to have investments in community-based organizations who have always been on the front lines responding to discrimination, to hate, to violence. And, um, and we need 
uh, government to play a role in ensuring that there are public safety system in place that is not only focused on, you know, supporting survivors of violence and supporting victims' families, because this is lasting and very traumatic and they need full support, wraparound support, but also focused on the intervention and preventative measures. We have to deal with the fact that our community doesn't feel safe, uh, doesn't feel safe to be out in public. We're concerned as the economy starts to open up, as schools uh, resume in-person learning. We're seeing news reports of and hearing from parents that they're concerned. Are their children going to be subjected to bullying, to mistreatment? And so we have to have a whole society response. We need educators. Uh, we need our elected officials. We need community groups working in concert with each other to respond to this uh, unprecedented surge in hate against our community. That makes me think about an initiative here in San Francisco. Um, Supervisors Gordon Marr and Connie Chan have called for the creation of a plan for a citywide victim support and violence prevention program. And that includes increasing funding for community resources, which is something that activists I've spoken with have certainly called for. And often those calls are specifically for investment in community and not in additional law enforcement. The supervisors are calling for the presentation of a plan by, I believe, June 1st. If it were up to you, what would you like to see in a plan like that? Well, it's it's great that you're raising this because this is a model for how cities can respond uh, to incidents of, of violence, uh, whether ro- racially motivated or not. Uh, we are actually a member of the Coalition for Community Safety and Justice. So in addition mm. to our national work, um, we um, have been very uh, invested and involved in this local effort. It's simply trying to get the city to to be more responsive in these types of investments. So Our coalition members are the Community Youth Center and Chinese Progressive Association and the New Breath Foundation. We're all working together to ensure that our communities are getting the support that they need during incidents of violence and that we are working upstream to prevent these incidents from occurring in the first place. And we are doing it in a way that calls for more Uh, long-term investments that get at the underlying causes of violence and crime. And we know that has to do with poverty. We know it has to do with the fact that our communities have historically been pitted against each other. And so we believe that there is uh, an important role that the city of San Francisco can play, both in terms of immediate and long-term solutions that are going to be necessary. Can you give some examples of ways in which investment can help prevent more of these attacks? I mean, especially when you're talking about root causes like poverty, what are some areas where you think investment would really help? Well, one thing is that um, right now when um, someone is a victim of violence or crime that is traumatic, there, there wasn't a system in place, uh, no coordinated response. And so uh, it's really important to fund community-based organizations, uh, which is why CYC, uh, who is a member of our coalition, they're 
uh, really being funded right now to respond to victims um, that need support immediately. And to have that in language and for it to be culturally competent is essential. And so that's one key component. Secondly, we have various agencies whose key responsibilities are around public safety. And there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of coordination. Um, There's confusion about their distinct roles and also um, as community first responders, we have no idea what the baseline expectations are for these agencies. What are they supposed to do? How are they working with community groups? What is their language capacity? And mm. so this is the work of the coalition to really make sure that those key agencies are working uh, with the community to make sure that they're meeting the unique needs of the Asian community. So those are just some of the examples. Um, and we very much are trying to work uh, closely with other impacted communities in those low-income and working um, class communities to ensure that you know we're doing this work together. That's interesting that there doesn't seem to be that there hasn't been like streamlined coordination between I I think you're talking about city agencies, various city agencies and community groups. Are there are there particular areas that can where that kind of collaboration can help improve public safety? Um, When I hear public safety, I think, you know, police and emergency medical services and maybe firefighters. Are you talking about other agencies as well? Yeah. So, for example, um, the city has invested in, you know, the street violence um, intervention programs. Mm-hmm. They have community ambassadors programs. These are non-law enforcement initiatives that really get at trying to, uh, you know, increase safety through these multiracial teams that have a presence in communities, relationships with the residents, Uh, small business owners, and are really there to be a resource. So these are things that I think are vital, and they should be coordinated in working with community groups that are providing the direct services. Um, So that will immediately, I think, give our community members a sense that the city is is doing all that it can to really support community members during this time. There are community-based programs, I understand, such as like the escort programs for the elderly so that they don't have to uh, go about doing their business alone. They can actually have somebody escort them as they're going to the bank or doing their grocery shopping. You know, obviously this doesn't, you know, get at some of the root causes, but I think it will help in terms of, you know, giving people a sense that uh, immediate sense that they um, can feel safer with that with those types of programs, and some of the equity issues. You know, obviously, COVID has really exposed in so many different ways um, uh, structural inequality. You know, we have a, a growing unhoused population. We have families that are facing food insecurity high rates of unemployment and underemployment and industries where our community members um, were working have been decimated, especially in the hospitality industry. So, Mm -hmm. um, 
the the city i think is actively working on a recovery plan that does include those communities who have been disproportionately impacted um, so that work along with the cross-racial solidarity and healing work is going to be you know vital as well so i think those are some of the examples that um, our coalition is really focused on I'm speaking with Cynthia Che, co-executive director of Chinese for Affirmative Action, one of the founding partners of Stop AAPI Hate. I'd like to get your reaction to some statements from Governor Gavin Newsom earlier this month. Um, He met with Asian American and Pacific Islander groups here in San Francisco after the Atlanta shooting and after several attacks in the Bay Area. And he said... Quote, the idea that we are today in 2021 still having conversations we were having in 1881, a year before the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882, is painful and infuriating at the same time. He also said, quote, that's San Francisco's scar. That's the state's scar. That's our nation's scar. And he also called out what he called quiet perpetrators of anti-Asian hate who might not associate themselves with crimes but with the kind of bigotry that's whispered or spoken. There's a couple of things to unpack there, but maybe we could start with your general reflections on his remarks. Yeah, we were actually um, in that meeting with Mm -hmm. uh, Governor Newsom, and we appreciated the fact that he reached out to the community uh, to learn more about what was happening, how we're responding, and how his administration can um, support our efforts. So that was really, really important. And obviously we followed up with him with very specific recommendations, um, which are consistent with what I shared with you earlier, which is invest Mm -hmm. in communities that are doing this work and, and responding. And I think that he was correct in talking about the particular dark stain on San Francisco and California in a period of of anti-Asian, anti-Chinese hysteria. Um, I think about um, the fact that, you know, you had racist rhetoric really rationalizing, fear-mongering that led to legislation banning, uh, excluding Chinese. Um, We also saw legislation with the 1875 Page Act, which explicitly uh, banned Chinese women from immigrating on the pretext Mm -hmm. of of immorality that uh, the Chinese women who were coming here were prostitutes. Um, And I like to connect that to the, the ways in which Asian women have been portrayed, you know, historically to uh, what happened in the Atlanta area shooting the fact that the shooter had thought that Asian women needed to be eliminated uh, because of his temptation. So um, words matter, history matters, and we have continued to draw those connections and correlations because it's really important. We have to understand that this backlash, this hatred, this animus towards Asians didn't come out of thin air. Uh, This has been very much our experience. Uh, It reminds us of how conditional our status is. One moment we're heralded as the model minority 
uh, really as a way to deny that structural racism exists. And the next, we are vilified, uh, dehumanized, um, and uh, made to be an existential threat to Americans um, and to our country. I thought his statement really, I think, reflected what many of us uh, believe to be true, and we hope that he will follow through on his pledge to to do all that he can to to stand with the Asian community. I think it's really crucial to recognize all of what you just said about the long history of anti-Asian racism in San Francisco, in California, and in the nation. At the same time, this conversation and like the, these remarks that he made kind of make me wonder, well, we have been hearing from folks about how this is now escalating to more frequent violence and attacks for a long time. I mean, you and I were talking about this last year. And and you've been sounding the along the alarm for a long time, so I, I'm I kind of want to put the question to you: why, why didn't the things that were tried to respond to this work? Where did we fall short? <laughs> yeah, well, I think that you know we're asking the same questions. I mean, one of the reasons why we started Stop API Hate was because we wanted to not just track it, but to really understand the magnitude so that we can respond um, to it. And, um, you know, we also knew that if we didn't document and track and have, you know, the data and, and the incident reports, that there would be a tendency to minimize um, mm. this issue. And so we not only have the receipts, as, as people say, but we have uh, detailed accounts of, what is happening to people. We have people talking about, you know, the, the nature of the discrimination, the hatred, what is, what is being said to them, how it's being said, and, and how it made them feel. Uh, in so many instances, when somebody's attacking you, you have no idea if they are going to uh, carry out further violence. At the time that you're being followed and harassed, you have no idea if uh, that person is going to hurt you or your child or your elderly parents. So um, this is a period in which, you know, Asian Americans are basic right to feel safe, basic right to have a sense of security and safety is, is being denied. And so we do believe that it, it is time to take this seriously with a sense of urgency you know, we've had a whole of uh, government response to COVID. We are um, having this period of racial reckoning. You know, we're in the midst of the Chauvin trial where we are hearing explicit details of how George Floyd died. This is has to be a period where we are asking ourselves, you know, as and asking our government leadership, the business community, our educators, we have to do more to address this, whether it's through public education, um, whether it's through funding those organizations that are doing this work. And, um, and it starts with where people can do that. And um, it's, it's really important that we're seeing 
this level of engagement and outreach and and we need to make sure that this these efforts are sustained this is not a one and done type of situation this is mm-hmm. got to be a wholesale review of of how we as a society are responding to to this period in time one thing that stood out to me about what the governor was saying is that people may not associate themselves with crimes, but with whispered or spoken bigotry. So I, I think it's likely that people don't actually associate themselves with bigotry at all. They like to think that they're not bigoted, but if they're participating in whispered or spoken bigotry, they're still bigoted. I'm wondering what your perspective is on whether education can address that and, and where it has to come from. Yeah, I mean, I think there have been sort of iconic or traditional notions of uh, racism and bigotry, you know, the the KKK and, and the, you know, their hood and robe, more explicit, you know, forms of uh, racism. And, you know, we associate very tragic stories of Emmett Till and, you know, Matthew Shepard and Vincent Chin. Yes, these things are horrific and obviously needs our attention um, in terms of, you know, the context in which these violent incidents occur. It, it is really important to recognize the different forms in which racism rears its head. You know, um, I think there's been lots of discussions around social conditioning and our perceptions around race and gender and sexual identity. And I think that uh, when we talk about racial reckoning, it, it does really mean um, deep reflection and an understanding of racist ideology, sexist ideology, um, and where that comes from. Um, and so there's been lots of talk about it's not enough to not be racist. We all have to engage in being anti-racist. Mm-hmm. Um, what are we doing within our families, uh, within our workplace, whether we're part of faith communities? How are we becoming more civically engaged to, to speak out and to condemn uh, all forms of hate? Uh, but what we can do around you know, educating ourselves to lean in on, I think, what we don't know Um, having curiosity. Every time I have an opportunity to address a group, whether it's college students or employees in a company, I talk about the fact that we all can participate in this. Um, You don't have to be an elected official or a policymaker or a head of a, a, a company. It is important for us to continue to develop a sense of curiosity to develop our critical analysis. The one thing that I I know is that social media has had this effect where it's, you know, really functions as an echo chamber. It has this effect of um, where we are resharing without actual interrogation of like that source, that media source, that information source. And I think it's really important that we think about how we get our information, what informs you know our thinking. For so long, when we think about police brutality, 
um, and especially the disproportionate impact we've had, you know, the black community, you know, we have to ask ourselves, why did it take the mur murder of George Floyd for us to say, this is wrong and this is, this is systemic and we need to look at and redefine public safety since this has been happening since the formation of policing and uh, when it started off as slave patrols, what kinds of stereotypes and social conditioning made us feel like, well, maybe, you know, why were they entangled with police in the first place? What kind of criminal acts were they engaged with in the first place that they were in that situation in the first place? What are some of our ideas about that we have of each other? Who is prone to criminality? Who is, you know, unless you believe that some uh, groups are, you know, intellectually inferior or culturally inferior, these are things that we were conditioned to believe in, just like the model minority myth was created specifically to suggest that if you were quiet and if you just worked hard, that's how you succeed. And to, again, deny that structural racism actually exists throughout society. Those are things that I think about when I talk about the ways in which more blatant forms of racism are, are something that are easily identifiable, but we have to look at all the other ways in which, you know, they can be equally harmful. Yeah. Well, we are running out of time a little bit, but I want to give you a chance to say anything that I didn't specifically ask about that you wanted to talk about. Well, I always like to end on this note that this is a very difficult time uh, for the Asian community and for other uh, communities who've been disproportionately impacted by structural racism, by sexism, and by the division, right, that's been sowed between and amongst and within our communities. But I'm also really inspired by the fact that we are in a political, cultural, social, economic moment in our country where we have a choice. We have a choice in redefining safety. We have a choice of what we want to do in terms of allyship. We have a choice in terms of how we are pushing our communities, our elected officials, in terms of how we are responding to addressing deep-seated structural racism in our country. And I'm inspired by, by witnessing, observing, and participating in ways in which we're doing this uh, within our communities and across our communities. And that's literally what helps me get up every day in the morning it's literally what I think I think about when I think about the future of my kids and other children. And, and in fact, it's young people who are really leading the way in terms of the transformative change that we need. Absolutely. Well, thank you for saying that. And thanks for your time. Thanks so much, Laura. I really appreciate it. That was Cynthia Che, co-executive director of Chinese for Affirmative Action, which is one of the founding partners of Stop AAPI Hate. I'm Laura Wenis, and you've been listening to Civic. Civic is produced at KSFPLP 102.5 FM in San Francisco. Our theme music is by John Dillon. 
Our team includes producer and contributor Mel Baker and assistant producer Liana Wilcox. KSFP is a project of the San Francisco Public Press, a nonprofit investigative newsroom. Find our reporting at sfpublicpress.org. 